Amen. Amen. Whenever I preach, I'm, I usually am in the back over here pacing, nervously trying to put together my opening for my sermon because I have this idea that if I open strong, I'll finish okay. But I, that song captured me, and in particular, the bridge that we sang. All my life, you have been what? You have been faithful. Even when I have been unfaithful, we remind ourselves of the truth that we serve a God whose disposition is forgiveness. I'm reminded of Paul's letter that he wrote to the church of Rome, that he who has so graciously given us his own son, will he not also graciously give us all things? All my life, God has been faithful even when I have been unfaithful. And I don't know why you're here today. Perhaps you came back after last Sunday, Easter, and you heard an amazing message. And I'm sorry you're stuck with me today, but but you're here and you you may come into this room and you may think, man, I have been so unfaithful for so long. Man, I I was here for years as a kid but I walked away and and I have been anything but faithful. But in that song, what did we remind ourselves of in the truth of the gospel? That even in our sin, even in our faithlessness, God is faithful to you. And he loves you so much that despite your sin and despite your faithlessness, he would graciously give up himself to call you a child of his own a son and a daughter of God himself. He is faithful to do that, to those who confess their sins and come to him. All my life you have been faithful. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we gather here on this Sunday morning and we sing your praises, Lord, I am wrecked yet again. The realization of how quickly and easily I can fall into faithlessness. But Lord, despite my own sin, despite our sin, you are faithful, you are good. And in your righteousness and in your love, Father, you have taken our sin upon yourself on the cross and risen to new life that we can look to the day when we won't have to worry about our faithlessness, and we won't have to worry about our sin and our failings, but we'll be made new as you are. In Christ's name we pray to our risen and coming again Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Hey, have a seat for me. Ah, man, good to see you this morning. How are you guys doing? Right on. If we have not had the opportunity to meet, my name is Brian. I serve as one of the pastors here at Spanish River Church. And it is good to be with you. As Chan said a second ago, we're diving into a new series. It's called Encounters with Christ or Encounters with Jesus. And what we're doing is we're taking a couple weeks and we're walking through conversations that Jesus had with people after he rose from the dead. And so you see a lot of different interactions. And today's sermon is entitled... Who are you seeking or who are you looking for? 
This is a particular interaction that Jesus has with Mary Magdalene. And see, here's the thing. She is desperately seeking for the body of Jesus in the garden. I mean, all of us, if we're honest, are seeking for a Savior. All of us are looking for value. All of us are seeking value. We're seeking purpose. We're seeking identity. We're seeking forgiveness. We are seeking a Savior, a, a, a fulfillment, an understanding. And so we look in a lot of different places for that. How many of you have lost something important to you and had to run after it and seek it? All right? None of you. Awesome. Okay. So let me tell you how awesome of a parent I am, and that is deeply, deeply sarcastic. Years ago, my uncle and my aunt came into town, and uh, they had a couple kids, and my wife and I have four, a boy and three girls. And so we decided, you know, we're going to take them. We're going to go to Lion Country Safari. And uh, maybe you've been there. You would think, Man, that's like the safest place ever. How could you lose something at Lion Country Safari? Everything's locked in your car. Well, we were done looking at all the animals, and we went into that little park they had, right? Maybe you've been there, if you've had the opportunity to go to Lion Country Safari. And so we were in that park. The place was slammed. So this is all pre-COVID. And uh, we're in there, and we're getting ready to leave. And, you know, I'm there with my aunt, my uncle, all these kids everywhere. And you do the head count. And I kept coming up on three. And I'm supposed to have four. And there was that moment of like, I looked at my wife and she looked at me because we were doing the same thing at the same time. And we're like, you getting three? I'm getting three too. And then panic immediately sets in. So one of our kids just disappears. And we're in the middle of crowded Lion Country Safari. And we just, I don't remember a whole lot of what happened next, but we both go sprinting in opposite directions. Screaming out, screaming out our child's name and like, ah, oh, you're... I, I remember a couple things. I remember one person came up to me and was like, what are they wearing? And I was like, I'm a dude. I'm not observant. I don't know. <laughs> and so I just kept running. And sure enough, I, I, I found her. She was on the miniature golf course um, eating Golden Grahams that I don't think she got from us. And... Uh, <laughs> just talking with a family that was playing mini golf around her like she was an object on the course. And I'm pretty sure they didn't speak English either. But I found her and all was good. But there was that moment of panic, right? Maybe, maybe as a child you were lost and there was that moment that came and you were like, where are my parents? And like you just started to hyperventilate. Or maybe you've been a parent and you've been on that side of it as well. Or perhaps you're just a much better parent than me and that's ever happened to you. But there's been those moments if it's people or it's objects when we just have to find it. And that's where we're at today. We're going to look at Mary Magdalene and the Savior that she is seeking in the garden. If you have your Bible, open up to John chapter 20. We're going to be reading from John's Gospel. John, the beloved disciple, wrote an account of the life of Jesus that he left for us. It's the fourth of four of such accounts that we find in the New Testament. You have Matthews, you have Mark's, you have Luke's, and you have John's. Again, we're looking at John chapter 20. We're going to pick up in verse 11 and read through verse 18. It is right up there on the screens. For those of you who are online, forgive me for not saying hello earlier. So great to have you joining us. That'll be on your screen as well. The word of the Lord, as recorded by the apostle John. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white 
sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Sir, sir, please, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go now to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in in preparation for this, I was told what I would be preaching on. And I wish I could tell you that I knew everything that there was to know about Mary Magdalene. But holy cow, was I incredibly ignorant. I'll be honest with you, I did not know much about Mary Magdalene. And as I dove into it, there's not really a whole lot in the scriptures about her, actually. Believe it or not, she's only mentioned 12 times. I know that's seven, but pretend this is 10, 7, 12. All right? Sorry, that's when my brain just tells you what's in it, and it shouldn't do that. But 12 times she's mentioned in the New Testament. 11 of those 12 times take place at the crucifixion or at the resurrection of Jesus. Across four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The one other account that we have of Mary Magdalene is found in Luke's Gospel. Luke tells us that she, along with a group of others, were healed of demon possession. She was healed by Jesus, assuming the text is telling us that, uh, of seven demons. And that's, that's what we know. And yet, you would, you would think that there's so much more information about this woman. Do you know that her Wikipedia page has more um, footnotes in it and comments in it than the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, and the Virgin Mary? And there's only 12 references to Mary Magdalene in the entire New Testament. And what most of us think that we know about her, or what most people, when they hear her name, think about her, is actually quite wrong. You'll hear people say that Mary Magdalene was actually a prostitute. There's nothing, nothing regarding that in her backstory in the text. That actually came out of a sermon that was preached in about the 6th century by Pope Gregory I, if anyone cares to know, and just kind of gained traction from there. Now, she is from a period, or she is from an area along the Sea of Galilee, called Magdala, hence Mary Magdalene. It was a huge fishing town, and there, there is said that prostitution was an issue there because of the big fishing industry and all the men that were there. But there's nothing in the text that would lead us to believe that that was part of her lifestyle or what she came out of. All we know is that she had dealt with demon possession. The second thing that people will associate with Mary Magdalene is they will say, oh, that was, that was the wife of Jesus. You may have read the book, you may have seen the movie, The Da Vinci Code, which came out a number of years ago. An incredibly popular book, a very well-written book. It's a fun book, but it's all fiction. 
Tom Hanks starred in the movie as well. And so people kind of ran with that, but that's not a new idea. It actually comes out of something called the Gnostic Gospels, which were false gospels written hundreds of years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It had kind of disappeared for a while, and then all of a sudden it came back with Dan Brown's book. But there's nothing in the text, there's nothing in the Bible that would lead us to believe either of those are even remotely possible. This is what we do know about Mary Magdalene. She was a broken woman. She was a woman that had, been, had dealt with not just demon possession, but a troubled past that would go along with that. And perhaps, perhaps that's the type of past that some of us in here have had, but we understand that she was granted this amazing honor, the amazing honor of being the first person to not only see Jesus after he was resurrected, but to speak with him. That's a big deal. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus, talking to the disciples, tells them that the kingdom of God is different than the kingdoms of this world. And when he says that, he turns to his disciples and he says, the first shall be what? The first shall be last, right? The last will now become first. It's this complete reversal in God's kingdom from how we operate in this world. And yet, who is the first of all people to witness a risen Jesus and speak with him? But the very least, culturally. First century Palestine, a woman, and that, not just it being a woman who in that society had very little value, but a woman with a checkered, broken, and troubled past. And yet, what do we see but this beautiful picture, this prophecy of Jesus saying, ah, the new creation and the kingdom of God is here. The last are first. Now, the the passage that we read, the passage that we read is a beautiful picture of the overwhelming grace of God that is found in Jesus, that is being extended to unworthy people such as her and I and you. Briefly, we get a picture of the gospel as it's becoming realized afresh and anew. Where people who recognize their sin and their brokenness and their alienation from a perfect and holy God are what but are reunited. Not because of anything that they've done or anything great that they've accomplished or anything that they know or give, but solely based on the grace and goodness of a God whose disposition is forgiveness. And who offers it in the finished work of Jesus Christ, God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, who willingly takes my sin and takes Mary's sin and takes your sin and does what? But crucifies it with Himself on the cross. My sin paid for, atoned for. Mary's sin paid for, atoned for. But not ending there, but Christ rising to new life and now interacting with her. And she's having this conversation and this encounter that is going to change this woman in amazing ways that unfortunately we won't get to see in Scripture. But I know this, and I know the value that Jesus placed on her. Because this woman will be the very first evangelist in the post-resurrected Jesus world. What does he tell her? He says, Mary, go! Go and tell my followers, tell my disciples that I am risen and ascending to the Father, my Father and your Father, my God and your God. 
the least of all of Jesus' followers. Jesus had a lot more than just the 12 disciples. There were crowds that had followed him for years. You see that in Luke. And Mary's one of them. And here she is, probably one of the least of all of them. Picture of grace in the gospel. The least becoming first. But there's something else that I pick up when I read through this. And it's, it's this, it's fascinating to me, but she doesn't recognize Jesus when she sees him. Did you pick up on that? She thinks he's the gardener, right? And she's like, please, gardener. It makes sense. It's the early morning. She's like, he's the only other person there. And she's like, he must be the gardener. Please, maybe you moved his body. Where is it? She's in mourning. And it said that she didn't recognize him yet, or she doesn't recognize, she recognizes him when she hears him utter her name. That's like her conversion moment. That moment that maybe you have had, that I have had, where all of a sudden it was Mary. And Mary went from blindness to sight. We see this in numerous accounts of Jesus interacting with people after his resurrection. We see this in the gentleman on the road to Emmaus. We see this in the disciples when they're out in the boat. And they see Jesus on the shore, but they don't recognize him. And he's like, hey, cast the net to the other side. But these people don't recognize him. But for Mary, I see this as a conversion moment. And maybe you have had that same moment where it was like this light bulb went off and suddenly the realization of the gospel struck you differently. It hit you afresh. It was new. It was real. And you heard it. You heard Mary. You heard John, Brian, Rebecca, Sarah. And you heard it, and the lights went on. And she went from this moment of blindness, of not recognizing who Jesus was, to experiencing the gift of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And it was like she knew who he was. But that blindness was caused by something. And I think that's why Jesus asked this question that he asks uh, found in verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Woman, what are you or who are you seeking? As I said before, we're all seeking after something. We're all seeking a Savior. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are seeking validity. We are seeking value. We are seeking purpose. We are seeking security. We are seeking control. We are seeking a Savior that will give us the happiness, the peace, and the hope that we crave in our souls. But more often than not, the saviors that we are seeking after are not actually real. They're what the Bible calls false saviors or idols. And that's what Mary had fallen into. Mary was looking at Jesus as a false savior. Now you say, whoa, Jesus was the savior, and you're right. But she was viewing his mission as different than what it was. It's what the crowd did on Palm Sunday. They saw Jesus as a Messiah, but as a military Messiah that would free them from Rome. Not as a Messiah that came to free them from sin. They looked for a, a Messiah that would give them a kingdom on earth in Israel. But he came to give them something so much greater in God's kingdom. And so Mary, Mary is blinded by how she has misconstrued Jesus' mission like all of the early followers of Jesus did, like you and I continue to do today. And there are three hints that I see in this that I want us to look at. First, you'll notice four times at the beginning of this passage, what does Mary do? But she weeps. 
Jesus numerous times had told his followers, his disciples, hey, I'm going to go away for a little bit, but I'm coming back. And she is overcome by grief. And I understand that. She lost her teacher. She lost the man that she has followed probably for over a year. She sat at his feet. She's seen him heal people. She got wrapped up in the excitement of all of this. And she should have. But he's gone. And there's that loss and that emotion. Tim Keller in his book, um, Counterfeit Gods, uh, which I think is probably one of my top five books, and I would highly recommend it, but in that, he gives one of his diagnosis, diagnoses, diagnoses, now we'll go with the first one, diagnoses of, of finding idols is, is basically a sense or a, a spirit of uncontrollable emotions. I had a student in my uh, youth ministry a number of years ago who knew where they were going to go to college. It was a university that their parents had gone to. They knew what they were going to study. They knew what they were going to do with their life. And they got the letter in the mail that said, we are sorry to tell you, but your application has been denied. And I sat there, and that poor student wept and had no way of processing what they were supposed to do. Now that had become an idol for them. See, idols are good things. Scratch that. They're good things that we make ultimate things. In the New City Catechism, they answer the question, what is idolatry? But idolatry is trusting in or worshiping the created rather than the creator. It's when we look for someone or something to give us value, to give us purpose, to give us happiness, to give us security and control that only God himself can give us. And so for this student, they had placed so much of their value in their parents' eyes. They had placed so much of their future control and what they were going to do in life on just getting into the right school. And when that was taken away, everything crashed and everything fell apart. And there was weeping, and there was anxiety, and there was depression because they had built such an idol out of that plan for their life. Maybe you've experienced something like that, but I think anger is one of the more, more common ways that we see this fleshed out. Look, I got four kids. I told you before. Life, life is fun, but it can be crazy sometimes. And you guys know this. You don't have to have kids to know this. Life is completely unpredictable and uncontrollable, right? But you know what? I like to control my life. And a lot of people carry control idols. A control idol that says, look, I need to not only control how my life works, but I need to control people around me. And people can become pawns and people can become used in order to help you create the security and the control that will bring you the happiness and the comfort and the peace that you require. And I can fall into that. And there can be especially times in my life when everything is just going crazy around me. And everything just seems completely chaotic. And you know what I do? Man, I come home and my house is a mess. And I lose it. And I got a great wife that calls me out on it. But man, I will, I'll come into that house and I'll come in with an attitude. And I just look at the kids and I'm like, that's it. Everybody clean your rooms. And I'll go get the vacuum. And I'll start, and we are cleaning this house. Everything in my life is a complete mess, but I will control one thing. <laughs> it will be this house. 
My wife thinks it's awesome because the house gets cleaned. But it's done. It's done from an idol. And we laugh at that. But how many of us lash out in anger when the little God that we serve suddenly doesn't, doesn't provide the security and the comfort that we think it should? Who do we lash out at when what, what we have planned and what we have set up and where we have placed our hope and security is suddenly taken away? And those emotions just go crazy. It's not just that, but she's weeping, but she's also seeking, which is what we talked about before, found in verse, found in verse 15. Whom are you seeking? Many of us are seeking after that which is going to protect us from what we're most scared of. We're seeking for that Savior, but we look for those Saviors in what? Another diagnostic that I've seen is that more often than not, what do we do? But idols are revealed in what our nightmares are. What is it that most terrifies you? What is it that, that you would ask the question of, if I ever lost this, I don't even know if I could continue to live. If this ever happened to me, if what happened to them ever actually happened to me, I, I don't think I could, I, I don't, I'd just rather die. You know what, if I can't have that, or I can't have that person, or I can't have this relationship, or I can't get that job, or this doesn't work out, what is even my purpose anymore? What is my value if I don't do X? If I can't preach the gospel to people on Sunday morning at Spanish River, what value do I have? What is your nightmare, and what is it that you're desperately seeking? Is it the approval of others? You can't lose that relationship so you'll stay in a toxic and horrible and sinful situation because you can't let go of that idol. And so it's, it's not just uncontrolled emotions, but it's our nightmares, but it's also our daydreams and what we fantasize about. Look what she does in verse uh, 17. Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. And there's that man, Jesus... She, she sees you. She's excited. I'm sure she wants to embrace him. Or she falls at his feet and maybe is grabbing his feet in tears of joy. And he says, woman, Mary, please, don't cling to me. Because it, and this is what I think is going on. I think in Mary's eyes, she sees Jesus and she's like, oh, he's back. Everything's going to go back to the way it was. Oh, man, we're going to get the group back together, the disciples and, and the, all the followers, and we're going to travel around Israel. We're going to see people healed, and we're going to see people changed. It's just going to be like it used to be. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm ascending. No, no, no. It's going to be different, but it's going to be so much better. And, and we can find what our idols are by the things that we are so excited about and that we dream about. I've heard a number of people say this. I've heard a number of authors quote it. I don't know who said it, but the quote goes, your religion will oftentimes be shown in what you do with your solitude. When you've got nothing going on and you're not too busy or you're just laying in bed or you're daydreaming, what do you dream about? Do you dream about the glory of God and the risen Savior that you get to spend eternity with? I don't. Or do we dream about that next amazing vacation? Or do we dream about that person that we might be able to get into a relationship with? Or do we dream and fantasize about what our kids might be someday? 
Or do we dream and fantasize about the job we may get, the house we may own, the amount of money we may make, and what we can do with it? That's a, it's a revealing and convicting thought. Because what we dream about oftentimes is what we value and what we elevate to the same place as God. And yet, look at what he says to her. He says, look, no, don't cling to me. For I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. When I read that, I thought of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And he says this. I want to read this for you. It's good for her. It's good for me. It's good for us. Paul, in his letter to the church of Colossus, says this. If then you have been raised with Christ. So he's speaking to people who have given their life to Christ. And he says, you have been raised to new life. You have gone from blindness to sight. You have gone to death to life. You have been raised with Christ spiritually. Seek the things that are above. What does Jesus do to Mary? He says, stop focusing on the here. Look at where I am going. To my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Paul continues. Focus on the things that are above where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. So set your minds on things that are above. Not on the things that are on this earth. For you have died. He's talking about your sins. As I said before, our sins have been crucified with Christ. And I bear them no more. To those who have recognized their sin and confronted them and confessed them, God is good and righteous and faithful to forgive. And not just forgive, but raise you and open your eyes to his new kingdom. This is an encounter that radically changes Mary. This is an encounter that radically changes me. This is an encounter that can radically change you. Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are a part of God's family, grafted into the line of Abraham, a child, a daughter, a son of God the Father. In verse 5, he says this, So let us put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness. These things are idolatry, he says. They blind us to the Savior who has come to forgive us of sin, to offer security and control, a God who is in control of all things, a hope that can never be lost, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. There's a new kingdom. Jesus is risen. And he is using the least and making them first. And he is opening the eyes of the blind. But like Mary, even after our eyes are open, we can still struggle. And we can still look to the created thing rather than the creator. I'm excited to meet her one day. And I'm excited to hear what God did with her. And I'm just as excited to hear what God will do with you when your eyes are opened to the risen and coming again Savior. Heavenly Father, Lord, grateful. 
grateful for, yes, a risen Savior, a coming again Savior, but a God whose disposition is to forgive, a God who gives sight to the blind. Lord, forgive us like all of our brothers and sisters before us who have looked to idols, who have looked to counterfeit gods, who have looked to created things rather than you for our identity, for our purpose, for our value, for our hope, for our peace that can only be found in the finished work of Christ. Lord, may we have an encounter with Jesus afresh, anew. For those who are far from you, Lord, may that encounter be so radical, Lord, that they are changed forever. Lord Jesus, we pray this in the name of the risen and coming again Savior, the only hope for our souls, Jesus Christ. Amen.